Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is September 18th, National Aging Awareness Day. Ironic. In 1769, it was reported by the Boston Gazette that the first piano had been built in North America. The instrument was named the Spinet and was made by John Harris. On this day in 1837, Tiffany & Co. was founded right here in New York City. On this day in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was declared by the U.S. Congress. The act allowed slave owners to claim slaves that had escaped into other states. Gross. On this day in 1851, the first issue of the New York Times was published. On this day in 1970, Jimmy... Hendricks died in his London apartment at the age of 27. The death was officially from an overdose of sleeping pills, but we all know he died choking on his own vomit. On this day in 1987, yours truly, the host of The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn, was born. What an occasion. On this day in 1997, Ted Turner... U.S. media magnate announced that over the next 10 years he would give a billion dollars to the United Nations. And lastly, on this day in 1998, the FDA approved a once-a-day, easy-to-swallow tablet medication for AIDS patients. It was a huge breakthrough. It was a huge breakthrough. National Aging Awareness Day is my birthday. That's the irony, and that's what makes it so funny. I am definitely aware of aging, because it's happening. God help us, it's happening. I'm just killing time here now. I guess I didn't have enough tidbits. But it is my birthday, so I can do what I want. Okay, uh, well, that just about does it. So, um, happy, happy September 18th. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No! But it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho... Before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. 
follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write it's more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall, you can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something something to keep us in business. If you like what you hear tonight, well, a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So, that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. There we go. If it sounded like our station was about to explode... Don't worry. It sounded like that on this end, too. So, hopefully that's been taken care of and no one's going to die here tonight. All right, so I don't know if you caught that little tidbit in this day in history, but... It is, as sad as I am to say it, it is my birthday. I'm 30 freaking years old. Can you believe that? A whole new decade, a whole new era. How did I get so old? Let's be real here. When I was in college, we actually, it was in a bioanthropology class. And we were, our assignment was to literally one part of our assignment was to write down the things we hope to do, the things we hope to have, and the things we hope to be by the time we are 30, 40, and 50. So I revisited that this morning, and I'm so happy to report that I haven't really lived up to any of them. Oh, God. But isn't that isn't that the story of our lives, people? I hope it's the story of yours because that'll make me feel better about the fact that it's the story of mine. You are listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we're not going to talk too much about the fact that it's my birthday, but I have to, usually, I always at least kind of outline what I'm going to be talking about on any given episode. I think that's the right thing to do. I think that's the, you know, professional thing to do. I don't want to come in here and be like, so, what's up? and so forth and so on. But I have to share a story with you that happened literally as I was walking to the studio tonight because it's on my mind so much so that if I don't just say it, it'll be sitting in the background and... Here's the thing about birthdays, especially ever since the invention of the Facebook. Well, you hear from almost everyone, and yet it can feel like you've heard from pretty much nobody. And why is that? It's because a Facebook... You know, writing on your wall takes two seconds and it can happen from anywhere in the world. So you're hearing from people that I haven't spoken to since the third grade. And that's fine. That's actually great. That's part of the that's one of the best things about Facebook is that it reminds people that it's your birthday and it gives them a quick, easy way to reach out so that they can say they've reached out and they don't have to feel bad about it. But here's the thing. 
Also what it does, and this can be a great thing, it reminds certain people who feel close enough to you that they should contact you in another way. For example, I've been getting text messages all day. I got to FaceTime with my little nephews today, and that's all great. Those are, that is what you look forward to birthdays for, stuff like that. But I've also gotten a few texts from people whose numbers aren't in my phone. And I'm telling this story knowing that the person who sent this might be listening. And if they are, no big deal. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with me not having their number. I'm going to find out who it is eventually. But listen to the exchange. Okay, so this was not the only uh, text message I got today from a number that I didn't immediately recognize. And, you know, that's not weird. They see it your birthday on Facebook. They shoot you a text. I'm sure I've gotten a new phone or two or three since we last spoke. And so, of course, I might not have their number. Now, a lot of times, if that's the case, people will say, hey, man, happy birthday. Uh, hope you're doing something fun to celebrate. Hyphen Steve from the pharmacy or something, you know, because Steve from the pharmacy knows that I might not have his number, but he still wants to say happy birthday. Steve is the best. But sometimes they don't put that hyphen. They don't say who it's from. So I got this birthday wish. And the reason I'm actually, and part of why this is pressing on me is because of how nice it is. This is a very nice person, whoever it might be. Hey, hey, happy birthday. Is today the big 3-0? If so, good decade ahead. And I say, it is. I can't believe it. Thanks for the message. Now, usually that's where the exchange would end, especially if it's someone that I, you know, if we're not close enough that I know their number, then usually, and this is not to say, I'm not saying that's where the exchange should end. Please understand. I'm saying that's usually where the exchange would end because, hey, people are busy. People don't really want to talk. You all know it's the truth. That's usually where this exchange would end. But then a few minutes later, they send me another text message. Where did those 20s go? And I respond, good question. Been asking myself all day. Winky emoji. Okay, thought that's where it would end. A few minutes later, I get another text from them. I thought the 30s were so much better. More perspective, not so much angst. Hope you enjoy them. You've got a great life ahead of you. Aww. And I respond, thank you so much for remembering. Okay. First of all, this person is already more thoughtful and more kind than most of you and me and me. I mean, like, that's a, that's an incredibly nice thing to say, right? Yes. Okay, so I say thank you so much for remembering. Now, here's the kicker. If we haven't had a kicker yet, here's the kicker. They respond to my text that says thank you for remembering, and they say, you bet. Don't forget, I want you to sing Handel's Allegro at my memorial service. You do it so well. Oh boy. Now here's where I I could get myself in trouble, all right? So I think I'm pretty good at playing stuff like this off. For example, the exchange thus far, you can't really tell that I don't know who that is. And my plan all along, and my plan still, is to... After the show, go back home, maybe text my mom, text a few siblings. I'm going to find out who this was. It's not going to be that hard. But for the time being, I'm not certain who it is. So I respond to that. I said, that's a long way off, but I'll make a note. Promise. Now, that's okay. That's all right. That's a pretty nice thing of me to say, right? But now I'm kicking it. I'm going over it in my head, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. What if this is like... One of my mom's close friends who's been battling cancer. Or like, what if, I don't even know, 
I have no idea. What if this is someone who doesn't, whose memorial service isn't a long way off? Did I just give myself up? And either way, did it come off as insensitive for me to be like, please, that's way down the road. I can't think about it now, but okay, whatever, promise. Is that how it comes off? I don't know. And what's weird to me is that that's where they stopped responding. Of all the texts I sent in that exchange, thanks for remembering, thanks for reaching out, I hope so, winky, whatever, that's like the, the least obvious ending point. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just a little worried about it. I'm anxious now to find out who that was so that I can actually reach out to them again and be like, thank you so much again for getting in touch. That was really nice. But anyway, this is the story of birthdays, is it not? At least on Facebook, no one can write anonymously. But either way, whoever this person was, I just want to say, if you are listening, I love you. I'll absolutely be there. I'll absolutely sing whatever you want me to sing. And I'm so appreciative that you took the time to reach out and say such nice things. I mean, people are so nice, aren't they? Yikes. Okay. Moving right along. So. I'm going to talk about a few things that have been that have gone down in the past week. Most of them are not necessarily that newsworthy, but they are just noteworthy to me and hopefully to you. And then for the second hour, because birthdays are reflective, they're times to reflect, they're times to think back on all that we've done or all that we really haven't done. And so we're going to do some of that. It'll explain when the time comes. I don't want to get into it now, okay? I'm busy. All right, so... If we could, please, let's get in really quick to what's going on in the news. What's going on in the world? Huh? You're listening to the next best thing. Here's what's making news tonight. Okay, that went smoothly. All right, so week two of the NFL is almost wrapped up. Someone's playing right now on Monday Night Football. I don't really care, but I can tell you this much. My Chiefs are 2-0 now, so they've won their first two games. And if you remember, last week I told you very excitedly that they had played the New England Patriots, the defending champion New England Patriots, on opening night. That matchup was literally the kickoff point for the entire NFL season. And much to almost everyone in the world's surprise, my Chiefs reigned supreme and kicked the crap out of Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and the New England Patriots. Hell yeah! So after that, people were talking about my Chiefs in a way that I'm not used to hearing. They were talking about how good the defense is, how great the offense looked, how unbelievable our quarterback Alex Smith looked. And they're also talking about how much they love our coach, Andy Reid. Now, I was, I was happy to hear that after week one. We went on, we won again, we beat another good team, the Philadelphia Eagles, who actually Andy Reid was the head coach of for many years. Long tenure as their head coach, he was very successful with them. We beat them, great. So we're 2-0 now. Now, people... I want to play a little excerpt. Now, I could have pulled this from anywhere. If I, I could have found cuts from ESPN, Fox Sports 1, CBS Sports, um, anything, really, the football network. But here's just a group, a panel. Uh, I believe this was on Fox Sports 1, actually. But it's a panel who consists of Colin Cowherd, Jason Whitlock, Tony Gonzalez, and one other guy who I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Here's why it matters. Tony Gonzalez was 
he's a Hall of Fame. He's going to be in the NFL Hall of Fame. He's considered one of the best, if not the best, tight end of all time. He spent most of his career playing for the Kansas City Chiefs. Jason Whitlock is a talking head, pundit, analyst, whatever. He spent most of his career writing about the Chiefs for the Kansas City Stars. So they have connections to the Chiefs. Colin Cowherd doesn't necessarily, neither did the other guy. But here's what they had to say about my Chiefs after their second win of the season. So now they're two wins, zero losses. Here's what they had to say. Are the Chiefs clearly the best team in the AFC West? Yeah, but barely because the division's really good, but they are. Belichick and Andy Reid are lethal because Andy knows offense, but he pays defense, Justin Houston. Belichick's a defensive guy, but he'll pay offense. When you can get a coach, and this is why Andy and Bill are the best in the league, they go away from their natural proclivity, affinity for the side they know. Most Pete Carroll, he veers defense too much. Peyton veers offense too much. By the way, the Cowboys, offensive coach, they got most of their stars on offense. That's what makes Kansas City well, great. I'll say that's what a smart coach should do because if you have a great coach who's terrific on the defensive side, his coaching and X and O mm -hmm. should make up for a little bit of a personnel deficiency. Exactly. Andy Reid has that advantage on offense. I'm going to defend Tony. I watched the NFL kickoff show. Tony tried to make a point about Alex Smith, and you, your head nearly exploded when he compared him to Aaron Rodgers. But it, this is the difference in the Chiefs. When Alex Smith throws downfield with this kind of accuracy, the only person to compare him to, it's not to say that he is Aaron Rodgers, but the only person to compare him to is Aaron Rodgers. They're both athletic. They both are very efficiency. They're both very accurate. The difference has been Alex Smith has never been that gunslinger that Aaron Rodgers is True. and throwing the ball downfield. And again, is he Aaron Rodgers? No, but that is who you should compare him to. Uh, the only difference but that I would uh, make right there is that Aaron Rodgers is more accurate outside of the numbers. Alex is very good, which is why Kelsey helps so much because Alex, and if you go look at his career, I mean, early in his career, he'd throw a, a go route and it would be four yards out of bounds. He's always had trouble throwing the ball outside the numbers. In between the numbers, the slants, the curls, the, you know, the post routes, the seams. He's very accurate. They have a lot of speed. You got big Kelsey running down. You have running backs that can catch the ball in those in-between areas. This is a very good team with a good defense. And as far as being the best in the AFC West, they may be the best in the NFL. Okay, so those are some pretty big, exciting claims. Exciting Maybe. Here's why I'm not as excited and kind of much, I'm not as quick to embrace comments like these this week as I was last week. I've heard comments like these before, and more than that, I know my team. It's just interesting to me because this is a very typical thing with national sports people, people who do, who only commentate the World Series or the Super Bowl as opposed to every day following a team. I know my team really well. It's the only team in the NFL I really give a crap about. So when I hear these guys talk like this about how good our coach is, how suddenly they're comparing Alex Smith to Aaron Rodgers, and they're talking about Kelsey and, you know, all these, you know, how good our defense is and might be the best in the NFL. But then I think to myself, well, wait a minute. I can only think of really one impact player who's on the team this year who wasn't on it last year or the year before or the year before. Andy Reid has been the Chiefs coach since 2013. 
2013, 14, 15, 16. So this is his fifth year as our head coach. Alex Smith has been our quarterback that entire time. We have had guys like Justin Houston, who he mentioned. We've had guys like Eric Berry. We've had good running backs. We've had a lot of these guys most of that time. This team is not a bunch of newbies. We do have a new running back, Kareem Hunt, who's great. We also have Tyreek Hill, who this is his second year. He's great, too. But the Chiefs have been good for a long time. In 2012, the year before Andy Reid came to Kansas City, they were 2-14. and 14. They were just so horrible. It was almost... It was almost unbearable. I was You couldn't even watch their games. They were so horrendous, atrocious. I made up a new word. They were atrocious. So then Andy Reid comes along. We get a new quarterback. Everything changes. The next year, the very next year, after going 2-14, and 14, they, they went 11-5. and five. They went, actually, they went 9-0 and 0 to start the year. They went 11-5. and five. The next year, 2014, they went 9-7. and seven. Now, that's still a winning record. That's the only year they haven't made the playoffs under Andy Reid. They went 11 and 5, then 9 and 7, then they went 11 and 5 again, and then last year we went 12 and 4 and won the AFC West. The AFC West, a division which people still call and called last year the best in the NFL. So the Chiefs have been good a long time. I don't really know why suddenly people are talking about them like they're this new discovery. It doesn't make any sense. And to be honest with you, it, it doesn't make me mad. It's very actually quite. It happens all the time when it comes to national pundits. But the reason it makes me a little less enthused to embrace their comments and to embrace their claims, like what this guy just said. This is a very good team with a good defense. And as far as being the best in the AFC West, they may be the best in the NFL. See, I can't get I can't hear that and be like, holy crap, you said we're the best in the NFL. We're going to kick everybody's ass and win the Super Bowl. Here's the thing. I do know this team. I do know that we've been good past years i also watched us lose i watched in 2013 i watched us cough up a 28 point lead to the indianapolis colts in the third quarter of a playoff game no! we were up 28 points in the third quarter and we lost okay i also watched us lose to the new england patriots i watched last year i watched us lose a home playoff game to the pittsburgh steelers so I can't get too excited, especially two games in. But I am happy that my Chiefs are doing well, even though you probably couldn't tell from this diatribe. Moving right along. Okay, moving right along here. Okay, this is something I feel very strongly about, and I'm going to delve into a little bit. So Hillary Clinton is currently on a book tour. She recently just came out with a memoir called What Happened. It details... Everything that she went through throughout the past two and a half to three years in regards to her campaign, the primaries, the general election, and whatnot. Now, I'm going to play an excerpt from uh, somebody else's show. His name is David Pakman, and I can't stress to you enough how much I like David Pakman. I like his show. He's incredibly smart. He's an unbelievably good interviewer. He, especially if he's interviewing someone that he might not agree with, he knows how to cut through all the bullshit. He's, I mean, I, I really do look up to him and I like him a whole lot. I think he is incredibly smart, incredibly accomplished. I like him a lot. His name is David Pakman and this is going to be a cut from his show, The David Pakman Show, which you should all go and listen to and watch on YouTube and whatever. So this was his reaction 
upon the initial cuts from Hillary's book being released. So the book had not been released. He had not read the book. This is important to stress. He had not read the book. Now, David is a very progressive thinker. He, I think he was more of a Bernie supporter, but once Hillary got the nomination, he was very pragmatic about it. He is a very pragmatic person, and he supported her as much as he, you know, he supported her. But here was his, here was how he reacted to the initial cuts of Hillary's book coming out. And then we're going to talk about it. Hillary Clinton has a memoir coming out soon. It's called What Happened. It includes quite a bit of material about the 2016 election, hence the title What Happened. We have excerpts. And to me, the simultaneously funniest and saddest and most frustrating parts of it are some of what Hillary Clinton believes happened in 2016. Let's put up a, a screenshot here. Where Hillary Clinton writes, throughout the primaries, every time I wanted to hit back against Bernie's attacks, I was told to restrain myself, noting that his plans didn't add up, that they would inevitably mean raising taxes on middle class families or that they were little more than a pipe dream. All of this could be used to reinforce his argument that I wasn't a true progressive. My team kept reminding me that we didn't want to alienate Bernie supporters. President Obama urged me to grit my teeth and lay off Bernie as much as I could. I felt like I was in a straitjacket. This is like full, full, full victim mode. Blame everybody mode except for herself. Consider she's blaming her team for telling her to restrain herself. Bernie for overpromising things, according to her. Bernie supporters sort of as being part of that idea that they would incorrectly identify Hillary Clinton as not progressive if she criticized Bernie's plans. If you can't figure out how to navigate, like forget the victim, the, the, the victim and blaming everybody stuff for a second. If you can't figure out how to successfully navigate those hurdles in a primary, have you really earned the presidency? Then you don't deserve to win. And I mean, you look at Hillary Clinton, she had every single advantage on her side. She had the mainstream media in support of her. She had the Democratic Party behind her from the beginning, coronated her as the candidate from the get-go. DNC. Uh, I mean, there was, there was just a number of examples. She had name recognition. She had been through the process before with her own campaigns, with her husband's campaigns. I mean, it was her fault for losing. But Pat, if it wasn't for her staff, as well as Bernie supporters and Bernie doing things that were restraining or constraining her then she wouldn't have had a problem. It was almost like Bernie Sanders was trying to win the presidency himself. It's crazy. It's almost like, yeah, Bernie was doing what he thought would help him win. Okay, let's break this down a little bit, shall we? First of all, oh, I mean, this, it really, I will say up front that I actually did tweet at David in my response to this. Plus, if you didn't know, this is actually not, Radio Free Brooklyn doesn't just go into my own bedroom, so anyone can hear this. All right, first of all, I can't even fully understand where David is coming from, because as I said, he is incredibly intelligent, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly diligent. Listen to the quote he pulls from Hillary's book. Here it is. Where Hillary Clinton writes, throughout the primaries, every time I wanted to hit back against Bernie's attacks, I was told to restrain myself, noting that his plans didn't add up, that they would inevitably mean raising taxes on middle class families or that they were little more than a pipe dream. All of this could be used to reinforce his argument that I wasn't a true progressive. My team kept reminding me that we didn't want to alienate Bernie supporters. President Obama urged me to grit my teeth and lay off Bernie as much as I could. 
I felt like I was in a straitjacket. Okay. Where does Hillary blame anyone for anything in that quote? At no point does she say, my team was putting me in a straitjacket and Obama told me to take it easy on Bernie and I knew the whole time they were wrong, those dumbasses, and I just wanted to kick back, but I, they wouldn't let me, those sons of bitches. It doesn't happen. She's telling you, she's reporting her experience. First of all, her staff has actually come forward and said that, yes, especially in the primary, they really hit hard the notion that we couldn't attack Bernie. We didn't want to make it seem like she was attacking his progressivism or she, she exactly what she says there. She didn't want to give him an opportunity to say, well, look at her. She's against this, so she's not as progressive, which is exactly what he was doing the whole time. She's not blaming anyone in this quote. She's literally just telling you what happened, which, frankly, are we? is anyone surprised? We all know that happened, and her staff has come forward since then and verified that, yes, they did harp on that a lot. They were telling her, do not, do not hit back too hard against Bernie Sanders. So I guess you could say she's complaining about that one aspect of her staff, but at no point does she say, so see, it's their fault. Fuck them. They were restraining me. And had they let me loose, I would have kicked his ass. She doesn't say that. Here's the quote one more time. And then I'm going to play David's reaction. Where Hillary Clinton writes throughout the primaries, every time I wanted to hit back against Bernie's attacks, I was told to restrain myself, noting that his plans didn't add up, that they would inevitably mean raising taxes on middle class families or that they were little more than a pipe dream. All of this could be used to reinforce his argument that I wasn't a true progressive. My team kept reminding me that we didn't want to alienate Bernie supporters. President Obama urged me to grit my teeth and lay off Bernie as much as I could. I felt like I was in a straitjacket. Okay, so that's the quote. And keep in mind that he introduced this quote by saying that it was one of the most hilarious, saddest, you know, like ridiculous parts of the book which is so smug and so, uh, you know, disappointing. But that was the quote, and here was his reaction. This is like full, full, full victim mode, blame everybody mode, except for herself. Consider, she's blaming her team for telling her to restrain herself. Wrong. She At no point did she say, so they made a mistake or they were wrong to do this. She never says that. She's simply telling what happened. She's reporting her experience, which is really the whole point of this book. So wrong. She's not blaming her team. Bernie for overpromising things, according to her. Bernie did overpromise things. See, now this is something that I know David understands very well, but Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are two very different people, and they went about their campaigns in very different ways. In a nutshell, Bernie Sanders promised and spoke constantly about what he saw as the end goal he wanted to accomplish and achieve universal health care, 15 or what was it, 15, 20 dollar, 50 dollar minimum wage, all those great things. Hillary, on the other hand, she probably 
In fact, I know on many accounts she had those same end goals in mind, but instead of talking about those constantly and promising simply to achieve them, she wanted to talk about the steps that she would take to work towards them and eventually achieve them. That was the big difference between the two of them. One was promising the moon, the other was talking about what she was going to do to get as close to the moon as she could so that whoever took over after her would be that much closer when their tenure started. She mentions the fact that when he would promise something really big and kind of unrealistic, for example, like raising the minimum wage at the drop of a hat or making single-payer health system appear magically, she wanted to respond to that by saying, that's impossible to do so quickly. We would have to work towards that and whatnot. And she did basically say that in the debates. But she never at any point in this quote that he reads, does she say Bernie was ridiculous. Bernie was being a, he was lying. Bernie was, you know, just saying all sorts of stuff that he knew wasn't true. She simply says how she felt when he would make his claims. She says how she felt in response to his campaign. There's no there's no blame in in the equation there. Bernie supporters sort of as being part of that idea that they would incorrectly identify Hillary Clinton as not progressive if she criticized Bernie's plans. Um, first of all, that is quite a stretch to take that quote and somehow work in that she was talking about Bernie supporters. She never mentioned Bernie supporters. She never laid blame to them at any point in that. She did say that her staff felt like if she hit back too hard against Bernie's claims and promises, he would use it to make her look like less of a progressive. That's not a, that, you know, that's not like up for debate at this point. That's exactly what he did. That was how his whole primary campaign, that was what it was all based on. S to say that she's blaming Bernie supporters at this point, in this quote of all things, is, is absurd. If you can't figure out... So he took that quote and then they said that she is just totally playing the victim and blaming everyone but herself. And she, they say that she had, his producer chimes in and says that she had everything going for her. The DNC was totally rigging the system so that she would win. That didn't happen. Not only did that not happen, but if anything, he also says that she had the mainstream media on her side. That is the biggest myth of anything. Hillary Clinton, the mainstream media wanted and tried to create a hardcore battle in the primary. They wanted a fierce battle between Hillary and whoever ran. It could have been Bernie. It could have been whoever. It happened to be Bernie. They wanted to create a real close race, make it seem like it was neck and neck. They wanted that because it would give them more viewers, better ratings. So if anything, they were actually helping Bernie in the primary. And that's not a big secret either. Most television execs will tell you that. This is such a this is such a Bernie supporter distorted view. And it's so outrageous because here's some cuts from a news report that came out around the same time as this quote from David Pakman. And it's on the subject of Hillary's new book. It was on ABC World News Tonight. And here's how it was introduced. Hillary Clinton's new book titled, What Happened? Clinton says she let millions of Americans down. Oh, that's weird. Right off the bat, Hillary says she let millions of Americans down. You're right. She's totally playing the blame game. 
keep in mind, and I said this at the very beginning, David Pakman had not read her book yet. These were cuts that were being released, you know, contemporaneously to the media for her book tour. He was reading that and interpreting it in his own way. So once again, David Muir, 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 ABC's anchor, David Muir. Hillary Clinton's new book titled, What Happened? Clinton says she let millions of Americans down. In her new book, Hillary Clinton offers a candid view of what it was like to run against Donald Trump. I want to pull back the curtain on an experience that was exhilarating, joyful, humbling, infuriating, and just plain baffling. Writing this wasn't easy. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Writing this wasn't easy. First of all, really quick, once again, let's hear her say what the point of writing this book was. I want to pull back the curtain on an experience that was exhilarating, joyful, humbling, infuriating, and just plain baffling. Writing this wasn't easy. Right. Now, I think we can all, it's easy to figure out why writing a book like this wasn't easy. Clinton says she let down millions of Americans. Every day that I was a candidate for president, I knew that millions of people were counting on me, and I couldn't bear the idea of letting them down. But I did. I couldn't get the job done, and I'll have to live with that for the rest of my life. So does that sound like she's looking for people to blame? Does that sound like she's not taking responsibility? God damn it. I mean, what is, have we, have we not battered this woman enough? Like, really, really drove me crazy about David, who, again, I, I respect, I like him a lot. When he responds to something like a random quote, like the one that he pulled from her book, and when he uses that to say, this is just total blaming, I mean, she can't take responsibility, and it's coming up with reasons that she couldn't have won, and it's everyone's fault but hers, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's interesting. I wonder if guy, if reactions like that are why, after a certain number of years, Hillary became a little guarded and a little more careful with her words when it came to speaking publicly. But then again, it was people like David who would criticize her for being too scripted, being too robotic. She's not authentic. And yet, when she comes out with a book like this, and I haven't read the book either, but I guarantee you, it doesn't matter what's in there. Guys, People are going to see what they want to see. And I'm surprised and disheartened that David was so quick to jump on the she's just playing the victim card bandwagon because he is smarter than that. And there are enough nincompoops out there. There are enough Bernie or bust people who are going to do that immediately. And all of these talk shows that are now having Bernie Sanders on and they're saying, you know, she talks a lot about you in her new book. She says that you were, she said that you didn't support her as much as she supported Barack Obama. How do you feel about that? First of all, that's probably not exactly what she said. And second of all, that's true. <laughs> that is true. In 2008, when there was a much closer primary election between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton lost, and yes, she fought to the end. God forbid. Fuck her. She fought to the end. But when she did concede, a lot of her supporters, and me included, had a hard time lending their support to Barack Obama. She held a press conference saying, look, all of you who supported me, you have to find it within yourself to get over it and get behind this man because he is the best bastion of hope for our country. 
she really got behind him. And even if it hurt, which you know it did, you, I, as a huge Hillary supporter, couldn't tell. I believed her, and we all got behind him. And it was not that, I mean, and we got over it for fuck's sake. It, it really bothers me because, you know, I may not have read Hillary's book, uh, What Happened Yet, but I have read the book Shattered, written by two outsiders, two investigative journalists who have no dog in this fight. So they're just telling it how it is. And yes, there are a number of mistakes that Hillary makes along the way. But the truth of the matter is a lot of the mistakes were made by her senior staff. And you know what? That's not even to blame them. That's just a fact. And frankly, when you look back and you take it step by step and kind of look at look at the campaign incrementally, they were ahead in the polls from day one until election day. She slaughtered him in all three of the debates. She held a great convention. The ratings were so much better than his. So really they didn't have any reason to panic or to think they needed to change course too drastically along the way. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we can look back and say, well, they didn't go to Michigan and they didn't go to Wisconsin and they should have done all this stuff. And that's true. And I understand that. But I, I think it's important that we keep in mind how clear and how wide the pathway was for her to victory. Now, having said that, and I'm going to wrap this up here, I've been going on longer than I expected, but I have a Republican friend who we talk about this stuff all the time. And when I finished reading Shattered, what I said to him was sabermetrician, sabermetrics. I asked him if he had ever heard of sabermetrics. He hadn't. If you're a baseball fan, I'm sure you've heard the term sabermetrics. But if not, quickly, sabermetrics is a term for using empirical statistical analysis to analyze pretty much every single aspect of the game. So in any given baseball game, as most of you probably know, baseball a given baseball game lasts nine innings, and each team gets to bat and field in each inning. So in any given baseball game, so many different hyper-specific stats are recorded for each individual player that by the time they've played a full season in the major leagues, which is 162 games per team, sabermetricians believe, and rightfully so, that they have enough raw data to tell you exactly how each player compares to all other players in the league. Not just how they compare to other players, but how that player will do against certain pitchers, how they'll do in certain weather conditions, how they play at night. I mean, it gets that hyper-specific. If you've, I'm sure you've heard of the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Well, that movie is largely about sabermetrics. Anywho, nowadays, you can't find a group of baseball fans who all agree on the usefulness and the validity of sabermetrics. You just can't do it. A lot of the old-timers think they're worthless and they have nothing to do with what actually happens on the field. Hardcore sabermetricians think they are gospel, and they pretty much look down on anyone who would suggest otherwise. They're smug and can come off, they can be real off-putting. Now, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think sabermetrics are incredibly useful and incredibly important to take into consideration, but I also watch a lot of baseball games, especially when it comes to my team, the Kansas City Royals. 
Let's not get into how they're doing lately, but that is my team. And I watch a lot of their games, a ton of their games. In any given season, I watch probably over 100 Royals games. And so I can tell you firsthand, without a shadow of a doubt, that there are a lot of things that analytics don't take into consideration, things that are important, like a player's durability, their leadership abilities, how much hustle they put into every single play, how, you know, their def- their defensive capabilities, how well they get along with their teammates, all that kind of stuff. You can brush that stuff off as being, oh, those are intangibles. Those aren't important. They're incredibly important. And frankly, if you really don't think so, then you just don't know what you're talking about. But I've never questioned the importance of those things. They're incredibly important. And I think they play a huge part in the success or failure of a team over any given season. And I can point out the Royals, while they're not doing great this year, they won the World Series in 2014. They went to the World Series. Oh, excuse me. They won the World Series in 2015. They went to the World Series in 2014. Back to back World Series, and they won one of them. According to the analytics, they were not a great team, and they had no business being in the playoffs, not to mention the World Series. They got there because of a combination of things, but a lot of it had to do with stuff that analytics can't measure, which is why the sabermetricians were totally thrown off and baffled by the Royals. So it does matter. Now, I tell that story and, you know, explain sabermetrics because those things, because that's the difference between a sabermetrician and just a good old-fashioned baseball fan. I think there, I think there's important input from both if you're going to put together a successful team or campaign Robbie Mook and this is something I learned from Shattered he is a pure he's like a pure sabermetrician he relied solely Robbie Mook for those of you who don't know was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager he relied solely on numbers demographics and statistical analysis while completely ignoring and at times belittling things like Bill and Hillary's Political instincts, the power of getting out and talking to people face-to-face, having a ground game, knocking on doors, etc. And the worst part is, and what made me so angry throughout the throughout reading Shattered, was that he had people trying to tell him all along from one woman whose name I think was Susie Tompkins-Bell. She's a huge donor and friend of Hillary, who at one point was condemning Robbie and the campaign for being unable unable to reveal Hillary's authenticity and their ham-fisted effort to manufacture a false version of it. That's true. To Bill Clinton, constantly. Now, Bill Clinton was the president. He won two presidential campaigns. Yes, the last one was in 1996. Who cares? I'm sorry, but there are some things that never change, and a politician's feel for and instincts are important. Bill Clinton was constantly telling Robbie Mook that he wanted to get out and talk to people, meet people in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Bill Clinton won two presidential elections for the love of God, and Robbie Mook brushed him off like some grandpa who still thought television was in black and white. I mean, really, it was it was just so maddening. He had people telling him, and he just didn't listen. And so, so yeah, I do think there's some blame to go around, but... Hillary's not going to get that benefit of the doubt, obviously. It just drives me crazy. It drives me crazy, and I don't know. And it's just, it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. She will never, the abuse this woman has taken is, it's just, it's maddening. I used to feel bad about it. Now I just get angry about it because, okay, she lost. Let her 
you know, let her write a goddamn book. For God's sake. Moving right along. Okay, now I took way more time on that than I expected, and so I'm going to have to cut this a little short. But I did go out. It is all over the news. The new version of It, the the remake. Can I speak? The remake of Stephen King's It, which came out just about two weeks ago, starring Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise the Dancing Clown, is smashing the box office records, and it's doing remarkably well. I went and saw it last Tuesday, so almost a full week ago. That was about three or four days after it actually came out in theaters. And why did it take me that long to see it? I'll tell you. I tried to see it two or three times before last Tuesday, but I was always met with a big sign that said sold out. Have you gone to a movie within the past like 15 years that you couldn't get a ticket for? Because I hadn't until this movie came along. It is that popular. It is that great. Now, I do have a lot of thoughts on this. For those of you who don't know, I love scary movies. I review scary movies on here from every decade. Most of the best scary movies were made years ago. And this is actually a movie that I have reviewed. And we've been looking forward to seeing the remake for a long time. Now, having seen it, here's what I'll say. I thought it was pretty good. I do. I think it was good. I think the kids, the actors, the young actors in this remake are excellent. They're hilarious and they, they're just really good. Now, part of why they're hilarious is because the writing. The writing is really good, especially when it comes to the dialogue for the kids. They talk like real teenagers talk. One difference, uh, a key difference between the 1990 version and this 2017 version is that the 1990 version, the first part is like in the 50s and then they grow up and it's the 80s. Well, in this new version, when they're kids, it's 1988. So all the cultural references have changed and their way of speaking has changed. And these kids talk like real teenagers talk. And I know because I've worked with some of them. They use curse words. They are vulgar. They can be as crass as you can imagine. And then some. And so they don't hold back in that regard. And it makes it, it's really good. The writing is very good. The children are, they act very, very well. Now, let's get to Pennywise. I think I made it pretty clear when I initially reviewed the original version of this movie that I was going to, it was going to be hard for me to think, it was going to be hard for me to see a new Pennywise and look at it fondly, considering how good I think Tim Curry was in that movie. Having said that, I think Bill Skarsgård does a very good job. He's very good. But I do think, and I'm going to say this, I think if you had this new movie with Tim Curry's Pennywise and the original score, I think you would have had a masterpiece. I truly believe that. And it's not, that's not a, a dig at Bill Skarsgård. I think he does a good job. But here's, I want to, I'm going to play one scene because it's, there are certain scenes in, that is in this new movie that's verbatim from the original film, which I imagine is verbatim from the book. So, this scene I'm going to play is comes in the very early part of the movie. It's little Georgie who's playing with his boat out in the rainstorm. His boat goes down into the sewer, and he thinks it's gone, and that's when we first meet Pennywise. 
It's this interaction between little Georgie and Pennywise. Now, I'm going to play the original first, and then we'll play, we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll play the new version. Okay, so here's the original with Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. Here we go. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. Pennywise? <laughs> I guess so. I gotta go. Go? Without this? Oh, exactly. Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh, you want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. All right, so that was the whole package. You were hearing the rain. You were hearing the interaction between Georgie and Pennywise. That was the first time we hear Pennywise talk in the, in the original movie, and it happens to be the same thing in this new version. The first time we hear him talk is this scene between Pennywise and Georgie. I could get into why I think this was great, but before we even talk about that, let's just go ahead and play the new version. Here's the same scene with different actors, obviously, and it's been updated 27 years. Here we go. Hiya, Georgie. What a nice pony. Do you want it back? Um, yes, please. Look like a nice boy. Do you want a balloon to a Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise, the dancing clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? I should get going now. Oh. Without your bow? Sweet mother of God. Okay, so here's my big takeaway. Now, that was the first scene with Pennywise. When I saw that, I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to hate this. Here's the biggest, and I feel like it's so obvious when you hear these two scenes. What is the biggest difference? Well, in the first one... Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say... So when in the first one, the train or the boat goes down into the sewer. He looks for it, then turns away and you hear, hi, Georgie, aren't you going to say hello? And they have this exchange. He's like, my dad says I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. 
there's a back and forth, a dialogue. The clown is kind of building this trust that I'm a funny clown guy. In the new version, first of all, listen to the sound that gets Georgie's attention after the boat goes down the sewer. It sounds like a werewolf has just chomped through the torso of a human being. <laughs> That's And then Pennywise is like, what is your idea? Without your boat? He sounds like everything bad you've ever imagined, especially for a child. He sounds like a murderer. He sounds like a pedophile. He sounds like a psychopath. Nothing good. <laughs> I mean, like, this boy, Georgie, if I heard that sound, then I looked into the sewer and I saw a clown that was like, Hi, Georgie. Do you want your boat? I would think, holy shit, run for your life. And so I guess my, my only point here is that like in the original, that scene, because this is the first time we see, George, we see uh, Pennywise interact with another person, we see how he kind of handles himself in the original you could understand why kids might be attracted to him because he seems like an actual clown. In fact, that, you know, you come to realize maybe that's why he appears as a clown in the first place is to appear as some, a friend to children, something they like, something they would be attracted to. It makes sense. In this new version, it is so, he is so clearly a bad guy, so clearly like scary and evil right from the get-go that you don't understand why anyone would, I mean, it kind of it throws the rest of the story off. You don't understand why anyone would ever be lured into his trance, his, you know, his lair. They wouldn't be. They would see him and run for their friggin' lives. Now, I could get into this a lot more. And I planned on it, but you know what? We only have two hours, folks, and so we have to move on. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we are going to be right back. 